Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. On today's episode, Robin is joined by Helen Chesky for a science book shambles. Uh, our guest is the US physicist, Professor Michael Dine. He's talking about his new book, This Way to the Universe. Uh, worth noting before it starts that when we recorded this a few weeks ago, uh, Michael was having a problem with his laptop and he couldn't turn off the the bing noises, the notification for his emails. So occasionally throughout the interview, you'll get uh, the email chime popping in, but uh, hopefully that's not too distracting for you. A couple of things to mention. Uh, we popped up a 30-minute short film on our YouTube channel this week. We were invited to go to Future Lab, which is a exhibition about uh, innovative and new future technologies. So we took our cameras with us and we made a short film about some of the cool stuff that we saw there. Uh, I get my hand manipulated by a remote control robotic glove. We talked about the Artemis project going back to the moon. AI, uh, automated, sustainable shipping, all sorts of stuff. That's on our YouTube channel, so you can go and check that out. Now, remember to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. You get extended episodes and lots of other stuff as well. Also, it means we can go and go to places like Future Lab and make those films available for everyone for free. So thank you very much for your support and uh, future thanks for your support if you sign up after this episode. If you're up at the Edinburgh Fringe or heading to the Edinburgh Fringe, don't forget there's lots of shambles people up there that you can go and see their shows. Grace Petrie, Josie Long, John Luke Roberts, Gecko, Charlie George, Ben Moore, lots of others as well. So keep an eye out for their shows. And we've put up some dates, uh, quite a few dates, for Robin's Bibliomaniac tour as well on the site at cosmicshambles.com slash bibliomaniac. That's got the dates and also where you can pre-order his new book. So do yourself a favour and have a look at that. And now let's get to today's episode. Here is Robin and Helen and Michael. Hello. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today on our um, science book shambles, it uh, actually means that it's not Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. It's Helen and Robin's Book Shambles. I'm joined by uh, Helen Chersky. And uh, we are going to be talking about the book This Way to the Universe, A Journey into Physics with Michael Dine. Um, you take notes. You should take notes because there are a lot of... Uh, I almost want to say fabulous ideas. And I know fabulous is the wrong word when we're talking about things which involve the laws of physics. But nevertheless, there are points when you start to go into a world which is for, for non-scientists in particular, I think initially, so counter-instinctual, some of the ideas that uh, are looked at. But then also they have behind them uh, equations. It's like black holes. I was talking with, I was doing, just, just started doing a show with Brian Cox. And to me, there is something so magnificent and strange that black holes definitely existed because the equations existed. And it just took a long time for us to eventually get that photo three and a half years ago. But it didn't matter because the equations were on the board, so they were definitely going to exist. Things like that, to me, um, are a delight. So, um, hello, Helen, and hello, Michael. Hello. Yes, hello. 
Um, Michael, I'm going to start off just by because, and I don't ask this in a facetious way. It's it's an, it's something that I've spent a lot of time wondering about, which is one of the first things that happens when you start off talking about physics is for people who are not scientists, for people who may well never get to the point of really you know deeply understanding the equations. What do you find is the best argument for saying this is the point? This is the reason you should read about ideas such as space-time and dark energy. What when people say, well, what's the point in reading this? What's your first argument? So I think my first argument is that, the, and I said what drove me to write this book is the fact that there's a lot we understand about the universe, an amazing amount, both on very, very small scales and very large scales. And... Uh, so small scales, I mean smaller than an atomic nucleus, so unimaginably small, and as large as the universe is that we see, so also unimaginably large. And I think there's a lot that one can convey about this understanding without detailed equations. And that's sort of what I've tried to do. And I think it's it, it, at this moment when we have so many you know, in our public sphere, for example, so many confusions about what's true and what's not and so on. I think having some grounding in the things we understand and the things we don't is, uh, is, is, is a value. And how do you feel that affects your perspective? Because one of the things I think, as you know, phys the, the, people, people don't talk about enough in the conversation between science and society, not that they're completely separate, is, is perspective. You know, like the actually when you have scientific training, Yes, it tells you lots of procedures and techniques and, and as close as you can get to a fact, perhaps. But it what it really does is changes your perspective. And maybe you've lived your life so, you know, bathed in the perspective of physics that you don't you, it's hard to be specific about how it changes the way you see the world. But what what do you think about the way knowing all this stuff helps changes the way you see the world? Well, I'm going to speak from a. Uh... A U.S. perspective. That's where I am, and, and that informed a little bit the discussion of, as the book evolved. Uh, my U.K. editors had different feelings about certain points than those in the U.S. Uh, but as an example, in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of discussion of COVID, and I think a lot of the confusion that exists and that leads us to is is the is is a lack of appreciation of the, of the issues in scientific investigation. The fact that you don't necessarily know the whole truth at a given moment, that your understanding may evolve. I, I think that's certainly colored the political discussion in the US about responses to COVID. Uh, so so I, that's kind of a, a very current example of where thinking about things like uncertainties, thinking about scientific uncertainties and questions is 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 something that does really drive our you know day-to-day -day lives these days in a, in a significant way i think i also i think what, what i changed in the book for the english edition is a discussion of the uh of orders of magnitude because i because of the notion of exponential growth of a pandemic and uh, i said the uh, the, the UK editors felt that the, at the point that this was going to press, that the, that the British public was a little weary, was suffering from pandemic fatigue. I'm not sure whether, you know, as, as the story has evolved, I'm not sure where we are exactly right now. But, uh, but I think that's, it. that's sort of an example. In the US, we also have a lot, you know, we have 
politicized discussions of things like evolution, of uh, of other scientific, uh, you know, of other scientific areas of you know of of, of uh, climate change, uh, and again, sort of having some appreciation of both what the facts are, but what are the, what are the challenges in, in, in interpreting them and, and, and making predictions for the future. I think that's uh, an area which. Uh, which having some scientific background informs it. And it's not unique, certainly, to physics by no means. It's interesting. Some of the scientists that I spoke to uh, about six months ago who were doing a lot of the you know, communication of the understanding of COVID said that the one thing they'd really found out and, and had a quick and hard lesson in, in terms of communicating with the mass media was to repeatedly explain, we believe this on this date because right. we had this information and that information the reason right. what you're hearing now is changed to always give the backstory to always give that short history right. of why because it does seem i mean it seems to be and i know helen and i've talked about this a lot before yeah yeah one of the great battles in with with, with the human way of thinking is that people want definites and therefore as we've seen with things like climate change the fact that the science changes is suddenly instead becomes oh you were wrong as opposed to we were right with the information at the time with and and there and this was the least wrong version of events the most useful version of events to follow at that particular time and now some of the information has changed some of the research has changed and therefore this is why we bend a little bit further into that direction or this direction but people right. i think and we very often see the way that newspapers report things they like to report them as 100% true right no i there, I, I could tell a story I, in 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 the book i I talk a good deal about my carpool, which was a included a group of scientists, you know, very distinguished people with, uh, you know, quite thoughtful, and they were one of them who was hardly an environmental radical. At one point, a number of years ago, said to me about, you know, so in the United States, I don't know quite what the situation is in the UK, but in the United States, there's uh, a good deal of skepticism in, in, in certain quarters about predictions of climate change. And we had had a former president who referred to them as a hoax. Um, and one of my colleagues at some point a number of years ago said to me, you know, if you think about bias, so this is a sort of the question of scientific bias. So bias is always an issue. This, which way do the biases really work? If you're, a, if you're a climate scientist, the biases work. You don't really want to de deliver news that's too terrible. Your bias is actually going to be to, um, to, 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 be less extreme so rather than the other way around so there's sort of this attitude that in, that in, in some popular circles that that uh, the climate scientists are trying to you know get attention and raise more money for their research and so on by making extreme predictions is probably backwards and i think this is again informed by sort of the day-to-day -day experience of scientists who know that bias can creep into their interpretation of data, their theorizing, all, all, all sorts of things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, I think so. it's very interesting that there is this, this, this I feel that physics especially has sort of these two conflicting pulls, if you like. And one of them is what you've just described is uncertainty and knowledge of bias. And, you know, we don't know. And we're actually, we're quite happy to change our minds if we know we're wrong. And, and that's all part of the game. Um, well, it's a very serious game, but that's all part of what right. you're doing. And then right. on the other hand, especially in theoretical physics, which is your expertise, there is this very complete dedication to the beauty of the equation. 
that an yes. equation can be so beautiful that it must be right. You know, as, as Robin was describing with the black holes, that the equation says it must be true and therefore it must be true. And there's this, I noticed, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a physicist, but I now work in oceans, which are a lot more messy than, than most yes. theoretical physics. And, and I really noticed that there's this bias in physics towards if it's beautiful, it must be true. And so there's, there's this balance between the, the beauty and the desire for elegance and also, well, we might be wrong. <laughs> Tomorrow we'll be saying something differently. Do you ever feel that conflict? Oh, no, definitely. Um, and, you know, theoretical physicists get, I think one of the things I describe a little bit in the book is theoretical physicists get to sort of choose their, choose the outlook for the day that, you know, for, for a particular day. So, we, you know, we can walk, I think what we have to do is kind of distinguish beautiful imaginary worlds, which we often explore, you know, worlds that are held together by beautiful equations and so on with the world in which we exist. And that, and, and that, and there's an issue at several levels. We, there are things we know, we know to be true, which are described by beautiful equations. There are things we don't understand so well, we don't know. And, and we can model them in various ways. And sometimes the models are beautiful and sometimes they're not. And, uh, and I think most of us, are, it's fun to work on beautiful models. It's, it's, it's very satisfying in certain kinds of ways. I think most of the time, most of us realize that that's by itself not, not necessarily the key to the truth, that we're not guaranteed that beauty is, uh, is the guide. And in fact, in, in this book, I think in, in tr trying to deal with some of the questions that we don't understand, I think one, we, I, I encounter exactly that. We have ideas. There's some of them are pretty, some not, and some of the pretty ones have turned out to be wrong, or at least to be wrong in the simplest ways we imagined they would be implemented. So it's not a guarantee going, you know, we can relish the things we know, some of which are very pretty, but uh, not guaranteed going forward that beauty will be a reliable guide. What, what, have, what have you found? I mean, I'm interested in terms of... I was talking to a cosmologist a while ago and, and when we got to the point of trying to understand that first moment of the universe and the fact that, you know, in one way, I, you two can correct me on this, but basically as far as I can see, either quantum mechanics or gravity is eventually going to have to go and everyone seems it's going to be gravity which is going to have to be reinterpreted and, and, and understood in a different way. And I remember as he started to say this is the problem and this is the problem where we see space becoming time and time becoming space, I could see that even though he spent a long time in this area, there is something in his eyes which still finds that an overwhelming thing to contemplate on a human scale if not on his scale as a, as a working scientist. Um, and I wondered about, for, in fact, for both of you, those moments where you're confronted by something you're working on and every now and again that little human voice comes in and goes, this really is quite remarkable and pretty extreme. So, Michael. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think I probably focus on it more from this kind of scientific perspective. I, I'm already kind of overwhelmed. I mean, so, so backing up, so, so, so with the things we understand about the universe, you know, we have a pretty good idea what happened up to, sorry, up to about three, up to about three minutes after the big, back rather to about three minutes after the Big Bang. 
And at that point already, the universe is a bizarre place and a lot of things are happening. It's, it, it's hot in a way that, you know, just, you know, is, is unimaginable, sort of you know, tens of billions of degrees centigrade. Uh, it's, um, it's dense. It's, it's, it's all sorts of things and we already know that. So that part I'm already sort of overwhelmed by. So in terms of human experience, uh, you know, things that, so things beyond human experience, even, even at times that are late compared to the big bang, the universe is, you know, when, when stars and galaxies are starting to form some of the billion years after the big bang or still 13 billion years ago, uh, you know, the universe is a quite different place. Uh, of course, uh, that's, you know, and, and nowadays, of course, we deal with things like, you know, we, we deal with extrasolar planets and so on. We know that, uh, you know, there are all kinds of environments that are not suitable for life that are, that are, but that are play a role either now or in the history of the universe. So that part, I think I, is, that's one hurdle to get over, if you like. And it's, it's, you know, and it's, and this is something about the human perspective, the, you know, where, where we are, you know, where we are, our, our place in the universe. And there's a little bit what I was alluding to as kind of our, our, the insignificance of our place in the universe. Um, but then we get to these bizarre things where our, where, where our theoretical ideas, our understanding breaks down. And so I sort of would distinguish that. And um, so black holes are an example. So things that happen at the event horizon of a black hole uh, are, this is a place where sort of time and space get interchanged. All kinds of weird things happen. And this is where our ideas about, about quantum mechanics and general relativity are challenged, where, where, where the tensions are between them. Uh, and similarly, in, the, in, in, the, in those very first moments of the universe, uh, there's a lot we don't know, a lot that, uh, and a lot that could be wildly different than we think about. So, for example, um, uh, we we know that there was this phenomenon. You probably have talked about this with some of the cosmologists you've interviewed of inflation. Okay, so the universe went through this period of very rapid expansion, and um, and we and we know we we know it happened. Okay, we have a lot of evidence that it happened. We have a lot of evidence that that's really the way that structure formed in the universe. And we have different ways of seeing that. Uh, at the same time, we don't really know exactly what happened. We don't know when it happened. So that's a funny idea. When I say when it happened, what I mean by that is we don't know if it happened a billionth of a second after the Big Bang or a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And you might well say, who cares? But I think for, but for, for cosmologists, this is, this is a, one of the big questions, when did this happen? And then can we peer back be, be, before that? Uh, this opens lots of challenges. It may well, it may well be that we can just tinker with the things we usually do and eventually get it right, but quite likely not. Quite likely we need something dr dramatically new. I think that you alluded to the fact that space and time, for example, at some point may, may not be like our our conventional picture and, and and we have we don't really know how that works but we have sort of models for how that might work uh we have models in which space and time are what or what, what uh, condensed matter physicists like to call emergent that the basic entities are not space and time but something else and just 
it looks like what we call space and time, but that's not really what the thing is. Uh, so, so these ideas are certainly uh, rather awesome and exciting, and and I'm already uh, kind of in awe. I'm in awe, in awe of nature as it is as it, 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 to start with. So that part isn't it's entirely it's, it's the fact that our ideas could just fall apart and some be transformed in some really remarkable ways that uh, I find very exciting and sometimes a little intimidating. <laughs> I think I've got quite a different answer to that question, Robin, just because I think one of the interesting things about the tools of physics is that they almost deliberately take you away from the question of what does it mean? Because you need these tools. Like, I mean, powers of 10 is quite a good one. It's a very simple tool. But actually, if you're going to talk about the size of the universe, you need a tool that almost hides the size of the universe because it's too unwieldy to deal with. And so the mathematical tools of physics almost deliberately hide the meaning. And I think one of the disciplines of, of physics, it's certainly the reason that I'm an experimentalist rather than a theorist, is well, what does it mean? What does it mean? And I, I do notice a trend uh, in physics papers now where scientists will launch straight into a paper on the topic. I was reading yesterday about uh, the physics of clicking knuckles and something about, there was another one, um, something else weird. Anyway, you know, you know, the sort of thing I research, but it was really interesting that the scientists leapt straight into the topic and used all these physical tools, but they never actually said what they meant. You know, they found a thing, they found a property, they'd found some relationship, but they then didn't go back and say, oh, what this means is that, you know, when the oh, stone skimming, that's what it was. When the stone hits the water spinning at a certain angle, then this happens. It was all hidden away in, you know, um, uh, scale dimensionless, uh constants right. and stuff like that and it's really interesting i and i think it's a it i think that's a bad habit i think physicists should right. constantly be asking the question what does it mean because if you and it's it's really hard right like, no, no. And it's, it's your job it's to bring it back right, right? To, right. That, to that meaning right no i think especially in, in in communicating things with colleagues and certainly with the public uh these are issues i mean you know in in, in particle physics and in cosmology just the units we use, you know, are, are uh, hide uh, a great deal of what's going on. I mean, we, we, you know, we just get comfortable with it. So we talk about we have a we have a unit, for example, for the size of which is appropriate for the size of a nucleus, which is called the Fermi. This is about one thousandth of a uh, of a billionth of a of a centimeter, uh, and we just throw this around, kind of. Casually, uh, we have other units that are similar, um, and and you and you certainly lose. You know, I I'm not sure we lose that much for it, but you certainly lose a certain perspective on what you're talking about, and you just get in the habit of framing things that way. Your equations look that way. Um, similarly, when, when cosmologists talk about the large scale, they talk about uh, megaparsecs so first of all you have to think what's you know what's a parsec a parsec is something like about two and a half light years it's, i find it easier to think about light years but for some you know astronomers like this other unit. uh but but then again we're talking about you know things that are you know what is that what what is the what is the size of the solar system in those kind of units what is the size of the earth in those sorts of units what is the size of a galaxy uh, and it's easy to lose it's, it's easy to lose track, I think, uh, and to lose perspective on, on this. And one of the things actually I talk about in the book, which is, uh, yeah, and, and one aspect I think of the question you asked is, 
where do these large differences of scale come from? Uh, why is it, why, why, why does the sun contain something like 10 to the 55th atoms? Uh, why does, uh, you know, where do these numbers come from? And, 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 and some of the great mysteries we face are really connected with this. And, uh, and this is certainly something I, I talk about in the book, but it's certainly something that drives a lot of physics research is this question about, this, this is actually a notion that goes back to Dirac, who this is his Dirac, the English physicist Dirac, who spoke of the, of the large number problem uh, and tried to give some explanation of where these things come from. And it's still something that sort of keeps lots of people awake night. It was certainly a driver of a lot of the thinking about the Large Hadron Collider program. It's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's uh, very much there. And I think there are lots of other ways, as you say, in which our language obscures, uh, you know, what's going on, certainly again, for the general public, but I think often for us as well. I mean, often we, we may also lose perspective. Well, I think the best, the best scientists are always the ones that know what it means. Like it's, you yeah. need to be very, very good to bring it back to what it actually means. And I think it's hard to do. So a lot of people don't right, do it. No, no, no. I was wondering, you were talking about, you know, you, you said, I think at the start of the book that you, um, you know, these are things that you teach your students. Obviously you're getting their initial reactions to it. And I was wondering when you talk, cause I think, you know, physics is actually quite good about talking about the history of the subject in comparison to other subjects. You know, the names are in there. We talk about Fermi and Dirac and Heisenberg cause they're kind of built into the, the name, you, know, you just can't give something a weird name without explaining that that was actually a person. And I was wondering whether your students are sort of, whether they feel connected to the human side of it, not just to the, oh, this is an elegant equation and it solves a problem and, and it can explain things, but actually there were, it, well, it's usually a bloke. There was a bloke who did this, you know, and, and it was hard and they had to think about it. It was a human side to it, as well as it being um, a, an, a mechanical solution, if you like, to a problem, functional solution. Well, I, I certainly, when I teach and when I write, I like to tell stories. Uh, and, um, and, and, it, and there's some danger in that. I'm not a professional historian, and I'm not sure that professional historians would totally approve of some of the things I do or say. I mean, I certainly borrow from the writings of professional historians. Uh, you know, an example, an example I like, which I which I mention in the book, has to do with Marie Curie, who I, I when I was young, probably about the same age when Robin was uh, seeing the uh, Powers of Ten video, uh, I you know I was handed a book about Marie Curie, a little biography, and you know it's a kind of heroic story, uh, and and then for years I kind of wondered how real it was. Um, uh, you know, was she really so significant or was it because people were struggling to find you know, female role models for people? And eventually I read things that convinced me that it was real. So I read some of the things she actually did. And I tell, talk about these uh, to my students and I talk about this in the book. Uh, she really recognized some of the things that were going to lead to quantum mechanics. So in addition to slaving away you know, in, in, you know, in this facility separating radium. Uh, she did some, she, she, she thought very hard about what she, what, about what she was doing. And, uh, and the other thing I really 
enjoy it at some point in a, in a wonderful book by Abraham Pais, uh, is, is a description of, uh, of a, or a story that he tells of Ernest Rutherford writing a letter to his mother. So he was, so Rutherford, I guess, was originally from New Zealand. He was now, at the time, I think he was writing this in, I think he was in Manchester, though he may have been in Canada. But he, uh, he writes to his mother that about how hard he's working and how anxious he is because he has competition. And the competition in particular is the Curies in Paris. And it's, you know, I said, okay, this is, you know, if, 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 if that's, this, is, this person was really real. If she had Rutherford lying, you know, with sleepless nights, worrying that he better get his, 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 his result, his experiments done because he was going to be, get beat out. This, this was a serious person. So telling stories of this kind. I mean, another set of stories I, I like is, uh, is about the early figures in quantum mechanics who were really quite, you know, engaged in a really quite remarkable struggle to straighten, to, to kind of reconcile really bizarre experimental results with what was then the understanding of you know, how laws of nature should work. And, uh, and, the, and, their, and their struggles along the way, their false steps, their, their skepticism and worry. I think, uh, you know, I, I, so these are kinds of things I'd like to talk about. It's very, it's very telling of character, isn't it? Especially quantum mechanics, because it challenges so much. I was just going to say, so I've been to the village that Ernest Rutherford came from. I think it's on the North Island, the north of the North Island in New Zealand. And there's a sort of, it's this tiny little village and there's a, a sort of monument to him, which is, you know, not enormous, but it's quite big compared to the village. And what's amazing, what I loved about it was that it was so human. It was, this was a sheep farming community. It's a little place stuck away on the North Island of New Zealand, you know, he could have lived out his life as a sheep farmer <laughs> right. and yet he didn't. And it's something about seeing that, seeing where he came from and how proud they are that one yeah. of them turned into this, you know, this famous physicist, but yeah. it's, a, he could have been a sheep farmer and that would have been yeah. it. <laughs> right. No, no, it's remarkable. And I, no, and I say uh, this aspect of him that, that he, you know, I, I, my sense is he wrote daily letters to his mother back in New Zealand. I think he was also a very loyal, a uh, very uh, loving grandparent, as I understand it stories i read about him too so he and at the same time you don't think of him as a, a as a warm and cuddly individual so his 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 uh, so he's clearly he, you know there's mu there's much i don't know about him, but there's clearly a rather rich story there i think i do think i so i was at the cavendish for a long time and i do think that he he made everyone not work long days i think he sent everyone home at 4 p.m i think that was him that you know uh -huh, you need time to think off you go yeah <laughs> there are though that, that as you said again that that humanizing because i think you know the moment that you start on on any books you know however however kind of popular or how much they're written for a general reader it's very hard to get in all the humanizing stories as well as getting all the information yes. in 300 pages and but then as you it's like I, I was thinking when you're talking about you know slightly later on in the history of quantum mechanics but in the 1950s you know that great story by about niels bohr uh going to see a lecture by wolfgang Pauli, which i'm sure you know and and at the end of it he goes up to him and he says uh, just so you know we've all had a conversation and we think your ideas are insane but are they insane enough now that to me, are they insane enough is it, once you see, you know, just to be given given that sentence when you're looking at something which is so confounding, uh, is gives you a little doorway to go. Oh, okay, they're, they're talking about the insanity sometimes of reality. 
And I think, you know, that some of the, that those or, or someone like John Wheeler, I think, was, you know, I mean, of course, you know, hugely influential and probably not known by many people, you know, out, outside. But, you know, so many of, of, of his lines, so many of the ways that he, as you were saying about Ernest Rutherford, the way that he would treat people, the way that John Wheeler t- treated people it, it, it seemed to immediately humanize an incredible endeavor. Right. No, no, that's true. I, you know, changing changing the direction slightly. I mean, the story of quantum mechanics and how remarkable it is. Um, you know, in terms of our sort of pers- human perspective, one of the things I talk about in the book, and here I actually borrowing an idea from a colleague of mine named Tom Banks, but you know, that we figured out quantum mechanics is in some sense really remarkable. So you know, our evol- we can sort of understand Newton's laws. We can sort of see why, you know, why we're programmed to understand the motion of projectiles, for example, or objects. And we, you know, we were, you know, we were we were hunter gatherers at some point. We wanted to follow the motion of animals, of projectiles, of falling rocks, so we didn't get hit by them. So it's kind of a natural extension of the things that that our evolutionary program programming set for us. Quantum mechanics is not that. Quantum mechanics is really weird. We did not need from some evolutionary perspective to, um, to understand how atoms work. And what's interesting is for me, so, so and, and we did, and we did figure it out and it is very weird. And what's interesting though is, you know, people like, for people like Bohr, I mean, there were moments certainly when Bohr was skeptical about whether we could really solve these problems. You know, whether perhaps this was something kind of beyond the capabilities of the human mind. Even what that means, I'm not sure exactly, but but it, it's, it surely means something. There, there, there could well be things, phenomena we couldn't, we, we just don't have the mental capacity to understand. And, and 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 that's my sense that, you know, sometimes the sense of the struggle that they that they went through. You know, it's actually also relatively remarkable that it was really on the scale of a career relatively brief, really a few years from from uh, from from initial inklings to 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 getting a, a, a complete picture. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess what we're what you're looking what actually it's not just human achievement; it's collective human achievement because right. oh, all yeah. of science is everybody. I mean, basically, whenever you do anything in science, you are using the foundation built by everybody else who ever did science right. one way or another. Um, right. But it's one of the interesting things about machine learning, I think, because people are, you know, now we've got massive data sets suddenly in the past five to 10 years, enormous numbers of numbers. And a human brain definitely can't cope with those. Right. And, and it looks, and there's all these machine learning people go, oh, well, we can, we can, we can spot seven dimensional patterns in these that a human can't get their head around. You're like, well, it's not as much fun, is it? Like, you know, does it? What does that mean in terms of actually understanding what's going on? You know, if you can make a prediction, and you don't understand why, does that count, or is it just a? Right. Well, it seems to work, so we carry on. You know, it's, I think there's very interesting questions about the future of physics and how you, right. what a human brain can do. Well, there's something that there's there's an example of that currently, which I talk about in my book. I mean, I do actually mention a little bit about machine learning, but not at great length. But but there is an example of that in the in the understanding of the nuclear forces. So, so uh, one of the so we've known for a long time, or had a lot of evidence for a long time, that protons and neutrons, the things that make up the atomic nucleus, are made of a more more smaller or more fundamental in some sense entities called quarks. 
and, and also, and that and the, the forces between them are mediated by things called gluons. But we've also had this situation, so we've known that since, with some confidence, since the mid-1960s. But we've also never been able to see a quark in isolation. And, and, and the quarks would be very distinct experimentally, because they have fractional charge, and, 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 that, and that's something you can detect, the fractional charge meaning a fraction of the charge of the electron or the proton. And that's something you can detect with, with, with some confidence. And, 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 and there's, people have searched, and there's no evidence. So, so there's a sort of crazy proposal that people made of something called quark confinement, that quarks can't get out. Okay? And at first, it looked very much like an excuse, and people were very skeptical. Theoretically, we have some ideas, uh, but at this point, we have the, the most reliable understanding comes from very large-scale computer simulations. So basically, there's a problem. You give the problem, you, 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 you figure out how to formulate the problem in a precise way, and then you give it to a computer or, or, or a computer farm, and it comes back, and they come back with a, with a result, and you say, ha, yes, quarks are confined. We know it. But you don't know, you don't feel it in your gut. You don't understand, you don't have any simple understanding. And as I mentioned in the book, there's actually, and as I tell my students, there is a prize for someone who can give a paper and pencil explanation, basically, of, of this fact. And it's a million dollars. It's been out there for, as an offering for a long time. No one's claimed it. So, so and, and I have to say that at the moment, I actually am approaching this problem, not in a way I don't think I could claim the million dollars, because the standard of the proof in the in the in the required for the award is very high. But at least in some qualitative way, that one could understand this. Uh, but I think, but this is an example of things that are, you know, uh, that are that are that we where we might have knowledge from computation that we can't that we can't do that aren't within human you know aren't human within human capacities to do and i think this is this is clearly something that we're going to deal with uh we'll deal with more and more i mean i talk a little bit in the book about you know what you know and i talk to students and i talk to the public about what's a what's a hard problem okay so there's a hard problem there's a hard problem for your student which is a homework problem and it takes more than a half an hour and they forget it. you know then there's the problem you give to a good graduate student takes them a few weeks but they can do it okay and but uh, and then there are the problems that there are problems that without massive computational capability you can't do and those are the things that mathematicians really call technically hard uh and some are impossible and that and and, and these are you know this is a class of problems that you know, are not easily grasped, uh, you know, by the human mind, you know, and where you, you where and where the the solutions may not be, you know, you may be stuck with these solutions that well, the computer told me this. What did you find when you were writing the book, thinking of trying to uh, manage to write as concisely as possible? Because obviously publishers always say, we need this book to be 120,000 words. And, you know, you, you go, oh, I need to have this many different ideas of our understanding of the universe. And I've got to get dark energy in there. And I've got to get all these. What was the, I, I remember, I, th I think it's Richard Feynman talked about the time where, I can't remember what the lecture was about. Someone said, we want you to do a lecture on this. And he spent weeks and weeks and he couldn't get it into an hour. And eventually he said, that means we don't really understand it. If I can't get this into an hour long lecture, 
culture and no one else can we don't really understand it and and on that though in terms of when you were putting together the book what was the hardest one you think to go man how can i how can i fit this into a chapter um it's a good question i haven't really thought about it that way i um because more of the issue was uh, so first of all, I mean, there are a lot of things I talk about where the point is we don't understand them very well. So at some point, you just stop. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't think I, I, I don't think that was so much the problem. I think the problem was more um, how do you make you know I, I don't I, I don't think I don't think of any of the things I talk about as as, as so far removed as to be beyond the understanding of anybody. And and how do you achieve that? How do you how do you get to that? You know, and you you, you mentioned your publisher. I had you know you know when publishers want this and that. I had a very good agent and a very good editor who 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 pushed me to you know. This we're lost here, <laughs> and so on. So so uh, you know, and it did a lot of the uh, rewriting, a lot of uh, of, of, of uh, thinking about to what to do. I had advice actually from a from a from an author, uh, a British author, who I became friendly with, Graham Farmelo, who has a wonderful biography of Dirac and a book about the British atomic bomb project, and another more recent book. Uh, and, uh, and he also provided a lot of advice about uh, how how to how to how to reach the public, how to not be so not to be you know, not to be too obscure. And uh, you know, so what I was really what I so what I was more concerned, I think, it, rather than length, was you can explain things, but how patient are people? You know. You know, I, how how long will people sit still to listen to an explanation? I think so. I was less worried about the word count than uh, than than how many minutes of, of of reading or listening could a person tolerate. You 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 get to to uh, um, string theory, and I wondered, in terms of what are the ideas that you feel as yet do not fit into a book like this these ideas which perhaps we might say are still you know too much philosophy and too much conjecture with 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 not enough that can actually be calculated what what are the ones that you hope that perhaps in you know 50 years time there will be that they will fit into a book like this well i think the real problem i mean i think i try and talk a little bit about what's what we understand and what's conjectural and and, and what are the obstacles to connecting string theory to nature, and they're, and they're huge. Uh, and they're huge and they're concrete. You can spell out what the problems are. So, and, and that I try and do. There are, there are many very beautiful mathematical things that we understand about, about string theory that um, it, would be, it would be quite neat if one could explain them. I think to, uh, you know, it, uh, and, and they're hard to explain. Um, and and they're also, the payoff isn't huge because we don't yet really have, I can't tell you that this explains why the the gravitational force has the strength it has or, uh, or some other thing, you know, what the dark matter is or why there's the amount of dark energy. Uh, 
In fact, I should back up and I should say that perhaps the number one question you might ask in string theory is why the dark energy is, you know, we have now have, we've been watching it, we've been measuring it for two decades. We know a lot about it. We know it's there. We know how much there is. Uh, and, and we have not a clue. Well, I shouldn't say we had another clue, but we have a very hard time making sense of this from the perspective of string theory. It's, it's on the one hand, it's 70% of the universe. It's most of the universe, most of the energy of the universe. And on the other hand, it's far, far smaller, many, many orders of magnitude smaller than one might expect it to be. And so, so that I think is, you know, I think the moment one has some kind of explanation, which is which people agree on and is compelling for that, uh, I think that that one 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 would have a story. I think that uh, the kind you know I mentioned, for example, that space time is is in some frameworks emerging. Uh, so I'm changing the subjects now. I'm turning to what would be really exciting to explain. Uh, it would be it would be very. I find this very exciting. The various contexts in which this arises within string theory, uh, and uh, and certainly I enjoy telling my colleagues who are less expert in string theory about them. But to to tell a real story in any detail to the general public is hard. And the payoff is it, the payoff, and again, in terms of phenomena that we then understand in nature, is is very small, if nil. And so, uh, so, so that's so there's a tension there, I think, uh, in, in terms of what one wants to describe. So if you ask about fitting things into 300 pages, and and, and certainly that's a limit. I mean, if, if one one if one would try to describe in any detail, so-called uh, the so-called matrix models or the, so-called ADS-CFT correspondence, uh, that's that would be books in itself, and people would long since be asleep before you really could get any ideas across. Yeah, well, I was just wondering what are the things that you are, in the terms of your work at the moment, you know, you're you're, you're watching the, the physics world, but you're also participating in it. What's right. the thing like this week or next week that's got you most excited? What's the little problem or the little thing that might not make much sense to someone outside? But what what's got you, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning at the moment? So one of the things I mentioned in the book is that, you know, is, and then this gets into this category of things that we, that I that are that are sort of cool and you'd like to explain, but it's not clear you you really can explain. It's not clear that it, that that you can justify talking about them at any great length to a general audience. And one of these has to do with I mentioned supersymmetry. So supersymmetry is something that people have thought about, looked for in nature, and not found. But it's turned out to be a sort of rich theoretical area. And and I mentioned this problem of quark confinement. And it turns out that in supersymmetric theories, which are not realistic, uh, this phenomenon of confinement uh, can and is understood in some cases. So then the question is, well, can you take that and you can, can you extend that to more ordinary theories, theories without this ex, all this extra symmetry, which we don't see evidence for in nature. And there have been speculations that you can. And I started out a little project where I was just kind of sort of, if you like, kind of deconstruct those sort of say, well, that's not, not really work, doesn't really work. But I actually think I see a way where you might be able to make some progress in this direction. And that's actually something that what's keeping me awake uh, this week, uh, well, rather literally. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm fortunately awake for this program. But, but, the, uh, but uh, 
but uh, something which might give some almost tractable handle on this question of confinement of work. And uh, so that that's so so um, it's not the biggest of the questions that are raised in the in the book. It, it, you don't you can't deal with those every day. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. So, uh, Michael's book, This Way to the Universe, A Journey into Physics, is out. It should be out now, I think. Is it out now in the UK? I, I never know because you get you know, you know get these things about four months beforehand and then someone says, no, it's been held back. Because, of course, during COVID, everyone's book was out seven months later. But hopefully now we're uh, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Helen, as well. Thank you very much to our producer, uh, Trent Burton. And uh, you can find lots of other discussions uh, on on book shambles with all manner of people and also on science shambles with uh, many uh, different scientists looking in many different areas uh, out towards the universe and uh, also deeply into our cells, atoms and wherever beyond that goes. Okay, well, thank you both so much. Thank you very much for listening. Rate, like, subscribe, review, five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, patreon.com slash bookshambles, where you can go to get extended episodes and subscribe and support the show. Check out our Future Lab film, just come out now on our YouTube channel. Bibliomaniac tour dates for Robin are up on the site as well. Lots more stuff coming next week, another new episode. Until then, uh, try and stay cool, stay safe, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Good, good, good.